You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, as we come to the, let me introduce myself. I'm Andrew Campbell. I'm one of the gospel community group leaders of the group that meets on base in Shiloh West. And that's the end of my introduction. Okay, so in the previous section that we've been working on in Galatians, um, last week we wrapped up chapter 4, we established that we, inclusive to the Gentiles and Jews in Christ, are of the promise to Abraham. For remember, the promise came to Abraham regarding Isaac as the child of not merely the flesh, but of the promise. It also established that those who persecuted them were of the slavery. And so we see in parallel that the Judaizers who are persecuting the church now in our section are then of the slavery, for they are not of the promise. And we see that those who are born of the promise are born of the Spirit, not the volition or the intention or effort of man, but of the grace of God. And also up to this point in our sermon series, the theme has been receiving circumcision for the sake of righteousness before God is in fact rejecting the grace of God. So receiving any work done to make you acceptable to God is in a way rejecting the grace of God and we ask why and how. So anything done by man then for the purpose of making you acceptable to God, attempts to add to the grace that He has called sufficient. And so then by adding to it or attempting to add to it, we say that what He called sufficient, we're calling deficient. So by saying we need to add to it to make us acceptable, we are claiming that what we add makes it complete, right? So that is how we reject God's grace in that manner. And so we see the phrase, Christ will be of no benefit to you in that matter. We've also heard the warning throughout our our sermon series, don't be naive and think this one thing, circumcision, is anything regards to the law. It is but one thing, remember? It is but one thing, and the entirety must be kept to not be regarded as a lawbreaker, and if a lawbreaker, under the curse. And so we understand that since we cannot keep this whole law, that if you attempt to keep the law for your righteousness, you are then a lawbreaker and under the curse. And so we understand that by attempting to keep the law for the sake of righteousness, we are returning the curse upon our head that Christ became a curse to redeem us from the curse. So then we see again, don't return to the curse and thus fall from grace. We've also learned that not only does self-righteousness have this eternal effect, but its character The character of legalism is one of destruction. Remember Pastor Adam preached saying, self-righteousness destroys love for God and trading it for love for man. Self-righteousness destroys gospel culture in a church, trading it for competition instead. And finally, self-righteousness destroys Christ's formation in you. 
And that would be our conforming to His image by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the way it destroys it is because when we apply self-righteousness for our acceptability, we say the thing that we've created, self-righteousness, is what makes us acceptable. So we craft a righteousness of ourselves. And thus, by our standard, we take that righteousness and we offer it to God. Again, a rejecting of Christ. And today in our text in opposition, Paul makes his urge saying, stand firm and do not return to a yoke of slavery. And so our question today is, if self-righteousness destroys so much and its temptation is so strong, what opposes it in the Christian? Paul is making his appeal to the redeemed, to those indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And then more than that, what in our new birth not simply opposes self-righteousness, but makes it pale in comparison. So what opposes it and what makes it pale in comparison? And along with this, our task today, I hope to arm you with some methods along the way to help you understand some potentially difficult passages or difficult things. So first, right now, we're going to start with some observations from the text that helps us orient our minds to the text. So first of all, we see, I'd like to point, guide your eyes to see the references to different people groups mentioned in our text. Starting in verse 5, we see, for freedom Christ has set us free us free and so we understand that that us used is in a specific sense remember he's talking to christians and then and then just to show you where we're going in the rest of the verses he's going to make mention to other groups that in fact will not be the same group he's mentioning in verse one so in verse one is us specifically then in verse two he says look paul look i paul say to you that if you accept circumcision Christ will be of no advantage to you. That you he's mentioning there is a general sense. In a general sense, this is a statement of truth. It's sort of a logic test. The first, remember, first verse one is us specifically. Verse two is a you in general. And then on to verse three, this is a he used in general. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Again, Verses 2 and 3, we now see our general like testing statements. Verse 4 as well is a you generally saying, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen away from grace. And then back to verse 5, he makes the statement, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And then in verse 6, he carries over the implication of that group. So just to wrap that up real quick, in the first verse, he says specifically to the church. The next, first, next three verses, he makes general groups, general groupings of people. And then back to f- 5 and 6, he brings in back to the church. This we, this inclusive we of the church. And also as we look at our verses, we see two commands that are somewhat similar, but in fact are a little distinct. The first one is, keep standing firm. Do not subject yourself to the yoke of slavery. 
And the second is like it. It's in verse 2. It says, look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you see that in a different translation, it will say receive. And so we say the second command would be do not receive a yoke of slavery as a good thing. Now, no one would ever say to you a yoke of slavery is a good thing in and of itself described that way. But what we've learned in Galatians is that the Judaizers came along saying this is a good thing that they're offering, this keeping of the law, as we've learned in circumcision, right? So Paul is saying don't receive a good thing that you may think is a good thing, but in fact is slavery. And then we have four declarative statements. Christ set us free for freedom, not slavery. The second one, understand that an obligation to one part is an obligation to the whole. So we are not the masters of our own righteousness getting to create our own. This too is self-righteousness. The third, we wait for the hope of righteousness through the Spirit by faith. And then the last one, faith working through love means everything. And finally, I would like to draw your eyes to three contrasts, and this is where we will land most of our look today, and we'll find most of our treasure in this text. The first, or the three contrasts are this, and I will bring them up again. The first one, Christ set us free for freedom. He didn't set us free for bondage. The second, justifying by law versus waiting for the hope of righteousness. And the third, self-righteousness versus faith working through love. So the first contrast, Christ set us free for freedom. And so again, another little interpretive aid, we hear this word freedom. And when you hear a word in Scripture, you read it. Ask yourself when you hear that word, when you see it in front of you, ask yourself what are the qualities of that word? bounded by Scripture and intended by the author. That way, when we read the Word, we don't insert our meaning into it, but we understand what is intended by the Word. So, in the first contrast, what are the qualities of the word freedom for the Christian? Bondage or benefit, or as a translation would say, advantage. So, we see for freedom, Christ set us free. He didn't set us free to become in bondage, right? The, the, the Scripture says He set us free for freedom, not to return to some kind of bondage. So we understand His freeing is complete. He is complete, and He didn't set us free keeping something that we are still blind to. That was the plea of the Judaizers. You're blind to this other freedom. The Judaizers came along saying, indeed, you are free, but these additional rules will somehow make you more free, right? More justified by God and somehow holier than Christ. Paul will return to qualify this freedom in more detail in the next section that we'll preach through in regard to sinful living, but in our section, this freedom, what is it in contrast to self-righteousness? So what is the quality of this freedom? And so surely when we use the word freedom, we, we mean it in its limited sense, not in terms of its boundless sense. 
right? For Paul and other places, I'm sure you've heard this, will say he will refer to himself as a bond slave of Christ, seeming in opposition to this, right? And in other places, he'll refer to Christians as slaves of Christ, bought at a high price, bought by the blood of Christ. And we see that this freedom has both positive and negative aspects. That's not the perfect way to say that, but bear with me. We may say that this freedom is in a negative sense. It is freeing us from the dominion of power of sin over us. And it's also freedom now to love God and obey His Word and commands. And in our specific view, it is a freedom from observing the ceremonial law for righteousness as represented in circumcision. So then, let's ask ourselves, what does this freedom mean? It is a freedom no longer bound to sin, but in fact bound to Christ bound to Him as our Savior. So that in direct contrast, what is the bondage but slavery to self-righteousness? As we've learned so many times, self-righteousness or legalism is bondage. You can even hear that a little bit in Paul's text where he says, you have been severed from Christ, you've fallen from grace. Remember, he's, in other passages, he'll talk about being grafted into the tree of Christ. And in some way, you can see that a little bit in this word picture, he's painting that self-righteousness is a bondage that weighs us down, that, that uh, burdens us, that is not a good thing for us. And we also remember Pastor Adam talking that this is not merely a restraining bondage, but is a destroying bondage regarding destroying love, gospel culture, and Christ's formation. And so then we have this next word, advantage. What is the advantage or benefit missing from self-righteousness? And see in verse 2, the quality of the word benefit or advantage is used in contrast to salvation because it is in the context of Christ. He says, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. And Christ is the benefit of salvation, right? So then self-righteous actions then will make Christ, who gives you salvation, no benefit to you. So we conclude from this contrast that Christ set us free to bind us to Him, His ways, His character, His word, His love, His affection. Christ has set us free for that freedom. And now let's move to the second contrast, justifying by law versus waiting for the hope of righteousness. So let's again, let's ask ourselves, what does this word hope mean? It's not in the sense what you'll find in Scripture that the way we might use hope saying, gee, I hope it doesn't rain. Or um, I hope so-and-so gets back on time for this, or I hope this goes well, but rather hope is like saying God said it, God's promise is true, and I hope in that. I ground my hope in that. So let's look closely at verse 5. Follow along with me in verse 5. It says, for, meaning when you see the word for, Every conclusion before that is the foundation for what comes next. For we, Christians, 
through the Spirit, according to the fact of the indwelling of Christ's Spirit by which we are of the promise. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, by the means of faith, which then only looks to God for righteousness, are waiting. Are waiting. Not grabbing something by our own means or our own effort or by our own standards. What are we waiting for? The hope of righteousness. That's a pretty tough statement, isn't it? For the hope of righteousness. So we see then, we look back and we think, this hope then is some way bound to righteousness, the hope of righteousness, in the same way that we might say the fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit is bound and produced an evidence of its nature, which is the nature is the Holy Spirit. So the hope then comes in some way from the righteousness. Also, what is the verb here? Waiting. What is the quality of this waiting in this respect? What has been the theme the whole time? Striving for self-righteousness. Striving to do these things to make you acceptable to God. And Paul says, in contrast, waiting for the hope of righteousness. Waiting is in contrast to striving for a self-righteousness that in some way we think will make us acceptable to God. So I want to point out here, when we don't fully understand a text, or it seems a little shrouded or veiled, we can look to parallel texts. We can pull up a parallel text that we may understand that talks about the same thing and derive a meaning from there. And in the epistle by the, epistle by the Apostle John, I'm not going to say that again, uh, uh, he speaks of this hope and the, mentions the waiting for it. In chapter 3, you all remember, if you were here with us when we went through John's epistle, I'm not going to say that whole thing again. John's epistle, well, I want you to hear from this section. Please listen for the position of the children of God, who they are looking at, what they hope for, and what the effect is. Listen, I'm sure you've all heard this, but listen carefully. This is 1 John chapter 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So our position, we are children of God now. And yet something within this text is saying something of us is not yet what it will be. Something that is true of us is in some way we are still waiting for. So the position of the children of God is we are the children of God, and yet we are waiting. What is the culmination of the waiting? They see him with their eyes. They see Jesus. And so what is the hope in this passage? We long and hope for what? 
for His appearing. For when His appearing comes, it says we will be like Him just as He is. This is our hope to see our Lord Jesus Christ and to be like Him. And then what's the effect of that hope? Did you hear it? The effect of that hope then is when it's fixed on Christ is that it purifies us in some way. Did you catch that? It purifies us as He is pure. So we deduce then from here that what we fix our hope on changes us in the likeness of the object of the hope. So what you fix your hope on has an effect upon you according to the object of the hope. What's our initial question and task for today? What in the new birth opposes the temptation of self-righteousness? And so I contend that this hope of righteousness is in direct contrast to outward attempts to make us acceptable. And stay with me here, is in reference not only to our positional righteousness and justification, but also in complete righteousness in the resurrection body and the new life. So our hope of righteousness, total and complete righteousness, opposes any attempts now for self-righteousness. This is the doctrine of glorification, the final step in salvation on the final day when Christ returns visibly in glory. And simply put, our hope grounded in God for complete and total righteousness disarms the temptation of self-righteousness. How? For in self-righteousness, we ground our hope in ourselves, right? We hope in our standard, our effort, our accounting, and ultimately, we hope in our declaration of justification but rather in hoping and glorification, God's promise, we ground our hope in His promise. Christ's effort, God's standard, God's accounting, ultimately His declaration of justification. And church, I contend that this highest affection, the highest affection that you have, orders your life. The highest affection that you have orders your life. Now, I love fried chicken. I love fried chicken. Amen. And all analogies and metaphors fall apart, but hang with me. I love fried chicken. And yet, if you were to come to me on a day in which I knew I was going to get fried chicken at some point after that, and you came and offered me pizza. Now, I like pizza too, but today I want fried chicken. If you came and offered me something else in some way, you will find out that my affection for that thing that I'm desiring, fried chicken in this case, will affect how I interact with the temptation to this lesser thing, pizza, right? And not only will it cause me to, to dismiss this lesser thing, but it'll cause me to 
utterly not even be distracted by it, right? You'll keep your eyes on the hope that you are longing for. And Paul is saying in the same way, leave these trifles of self-righteousness. Not only for the sake of their legal inadequacy, but because we have a hope that far exceeds it. Remember that right, the righteousness that God requires far exceeds anything we could devise. Remember Pastor Adam led us through that. We may see in the text what we think is that, oh, that is righteousness. But in fact, when Jesus came and preached on the Sermon on the Mount, He said, no, it's so much more, right? So then if we were to construct any self-righteousness, it still would pale in comparison to all that God requires. Remember, John says this, he who fixes his hope on Christ purifies himself. And don't read beyond the intent here, supposing we may attain perfection like Christ here and now. Read the intent of it. The point is to say that this hope in Christ, grounded on the fact of God's promise, will in fact order your entire life in a pleasing way to God. So what is the ultimate result of waiting by faith instead of striving? You love God. The result of waiting for the hope of righteousness is you love God. By fixing your affection on what God has promised, above all other trifles, you love God. By fixing it on what He has said He will do, you love God. And not only this, you will love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. The greatest commandment, right? So what opposes self-righteousness in the Christian? A greater and better and more satisfying and truer and eternal and fixed and completely satisfying reality. The hope of glorification, the hope of righteousness. And do you see it? In some way, it results in your obedience to love God. And our third contrast was self-righteousness versus faith working through love. We see that in verse 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's look carefully at this text Remember this word for, indicating that an argument continues based upon a previous conclusion. And we understand the previous conclusion is we are waiting for the hope of glorification as God promised. For in Christ Jesus, this is a statement about our position, our union with Christ, our new identity in Christ. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What does this mean? This whole time in Scripture, in, this, in Galatians, circumcision has been a measuring stick by which people can compare themselves, right? Remember we said that legalism destroys love and replaces it with competition, right? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And as we know, this faith we have does things in accordance with its nature, right? Faith working through love. 
This faith is of God and given of God, and it is of God, therefore it does things in accordance with that nature. So putting it all together, we see that faith working through love is opposed to this comparative sense of circumcision. Remember also that circumcision was an outward act, an outward indication of the old covenant. And now we see faith working through love is the outward looking, the outward indication of the new covenant. This love is opposed to comparison in the body. And yet positively, it is for love in the body. And so let's put all this together from verse 5 and verse 6. As you are fixing your gaze on the hope of righteousness, and then as a result of your union with Christ, faith works. How? Through love. Is this not the commandment of Christ? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see the connection? By hoping in the promise that we will be like Him, perfected in body and mind and spirit, we will be with Him in perfect relationship like we just sang about. We love God like Christ told us to, placing all our affection and our desire and our hope in Him. And then by loving God, faith works outwardly through us to love one another in direct opposition to competitive righteousness. And so we see that grounding our hope in God actually leads us to keep the commandments that we said we would, that, God, that John said we would keep. Do you remember that in 1 John 5? He said, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. He will follow that right up with saying, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Church, when we are enraptured by the beauty of the hope of God's promises, the result is we do what that verse says. When we read that verse, it may be challenging to us that we would keep His commands and this is love of Him, but in fact, when we ground our hope in Him, we find that Paul is saying the result is you will keep them. That's incredible. Do we, do we see now how this hope of righteousness opposes this yoke of slavery to self-righteousness? You may say treasures in mind make easy work of leaving trifles behind. This hope of glorification further opposes the yoke of slavery, not by just causing us to uh, be in direct opposition to it or turning our eyes off of it, but in fact, it is a greater thing. It's not just merely don't return to the yoke of slavery, but see this better thing that just makes it pale. It's a trifle. It's pizza when you have fried chicken offered. It binds our affections as the people of the promise to the God who makes the promise. 
Remember, we are the people begotten of the promise made to Abraham. And thus, when we hope in God, we are fixing our affection on the one who begot us through the Holy Spirit, God. So let's transition to this. What, what comes to mind when you think of the word hope? Hope and glorification. Let me ask it more bluntly. Is there a sense in which you think that you may struggle to hope in a gift of God in some way it becomes idolatrous that you would, you would think in your mind, I'm loving the gift more than the giver? If you struggle with that, hear the testimony of Scripture. Hear this from 1 Peter and listen to the preciousness of the hope and what we were born again to receive. This is 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Just listen with me. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This hope we have is tangible, physical, real, imperishable, undefiled, eternal, like the Son of God now. He was resurrected in a body, the first among many sons, right? And we hope in this reality to be like Him. Remember John says when we see Him, we will be like Him. And so church today, in this next section, let's spend some time hoping in Christ. Let's spend some time hoping in that righteousness, as Paul says, waiting for the hope of righteousness. Let these realities that we will talk about here penetrate your hands that may still be clinging at trifles and self-righteousness. And just imagine that this new birth we're talking about, the spiritual reality of the new birth positionally now will be manifest completely. No longer warring against your own flesh. No longer warring against the old man. No longer under the curse, but rather what is true positionally now. We are children of God now, but when we see Him, we will be like Him. That is the hope of righteousness. This is the hope Expressed in Romans 8, Paul says we are eager awaiting as the ones who have the first fruit for our adoption as sons. Hear this, the redemption of our bodies. In this we hope. In 1 Corinthians, Paul also writes about that we will be raised imperishable in glory, not in weakness, but in power. Hear this, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will bear the image of the heavenly. And this is also the hope of glory that we see in Hebrews 11. 
You may have heard, been heard of it referred to as the hall of faith. Hear this from Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus, listen, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, something that is true, but not yet. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And here the great conclusion, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because He has prepared for them a city. So this desire that they have within them looks to something that God has promised and is making for them. So what is the effect of hoping in righteousness? We lose concern for self-righteousness. We lose concern for competing. Isn't that such a relief? Both of these pale in comparison to this great hope we have in Christ. Think on God's excellency. He made the entire universe in the atom in your eye. He's ordering all things all the time. And we will be with Him. With Him. Think on His perfection and His goodness and we will be with Him. And we will be as Christ is as much as we can be. That is again in a limited sense, right? We cannot be infinite, but in some way we will be able to be with God and not be destroyed, right? We cannot possess God's natural excellency, meaning His omniscience and, uh, and His power and all of these things, but think of His moral excellency, His justice, His goodness, his kindness, His love. And we will see Christ as He is. No longer broken and humiliated, but exalted and terrifying and wonderful and bright. With legions of angels doing only the most natural thing to do in that presence, which is to sing and worship and tell of His excellency and holiness, and we will see Him as our King, our King indeed. And then we will also see the world seeing our King. Every knee will bow and tongue confess He is King. And in this moment, this will not be a saving acknowledgement by the world, but rather a mere stating of plain fact. The king that we profess now will be a plain, observable fact. We will be seen as in his number, no longer, as Hebrews writes, 
going around wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, but rather robed in righteousness and heirs of the king. Go read Revelation and remember, you're going to be physically in that number. Physically. Think on this perfection of the gathering of the saints. Think on the perfection of a new creation. It won't just be nice outside, but the wind might be perfect. You could plant and there'll be no weeds, no futility of effort. Because even now in the creation, Paul writes about this, we can see that the creation is both created and good and yet under a curse, right? So we can still see the echoes of the perfection that it was made for, yet but now in the new creation there will be no curse. A perfected physical reality, this is the hope of righteousness. And think on the perfection of a new body and a new mind. We will be totally righteous. How does self-righteousness even compare? No longer only positionally righteous, and yet still warring against our flesh, but totally. The cleansing within will be complete and infinitely evident in the new man, no longer struggling to live loving each other perfectly, no longer struggling to love God as He should be, totally and completely righteous. And so, church, in conclusion, the hope of righteousness is just so much better. so much more satisfying reality to dream about. For we know that even when we are in competition for one another, most of that war goes on in our mind in which we think and we compare and we weigh the scales between one another. For the hope of righteousness displaces that and let it. So Christian, what opposes the yoke of slavery to self-righteousness? Spending time reveling in the hope of righteousness that when we see Him returning in glory, we will be like Him. We have a physical, concrete hope in God that will make every appeal of self-righteousness drown away. Church, is this your hope? Spend some time hoping in your Lord this week. Relish in what He's made and is making for you. Remember, Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you. Let's pray.